Hello and welcome to Florida Basketball Hour. I am Neil Blackman, Saturday Down South. On this show, Eric Fawcett, GatorCountry.com, and myself will break down Florida's big win over number 20 Florida State Sunday in the O'Connell Center. We will also discuss and preview Florida's upcoming contest with Milwaukee on Thursday night. The Panthers come in with a lottery pick, which is a rare thing for a Horizon League or mid-major team to have on their roster, but Patrick Baldwin Jr., will probably be one of the top three or four picks in the NBA draft, certainly drafted in the top 10, uh, and, and Gators fans will get a chance to see him. But first, lots of discussion on the big win over the Knowles. Gators obviously snap a long losing streak. Mike White's first win over FSU. It was a long time coming, um, and this was a fun show. So we hope you guys enjoyed. Please remember to give us a heart on Spotify, a follow on Apple, leave a review at Apple Podcasts, anything you think we can do better. We like to read these reviews on air. Um, and we're just so grateful for all of you for listening as we've hit 200,000 listens um, over four years, 100,000 of which came in the last year. So we're really excited to be growing and grateful for all of you. Uh, thanks and enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to Florida Basketball Hour. I am Neil Blackman, Saturday Down South, with Eric Fawcett, GatorCountry.com, among other places. Eric, one week into the basketball season, man. It's good. What's up? <laughs> it is very good. This is a good time to be a Florida basketball fan, and I suppose a good time to be a Florida basketball podcast, so uh, it's great to be talking to you. Yeah, I mean, uh, we haven't gotten to do one of these, so... You know, year four of FBH, you've been with me most of the way. Uh, I guess we've we've done a lot of sad people or sad podcasts after Florida has played FSU. So it's cool to, to be on the, the flip side of it with Florida's um, 71-55 win on uh, Sunday afternoon. Yeah, I mean, this is crazy. Like, a little bit longer than the podcast. I guess I've been writing and, yeah, I've never gotten the chance to write Uh Florida beats Florida state column. So that was, uh, that felt good. And for it to kind of happen and I would like almost the, well, from an entertainment standpoint, I'll say the best way possible because it was close. There was plenty of drama for you know, up until the half up the first several minutes of the second half. So it kind of had that intensity that really made it feel like a rivalry game. But then obviously, ultimately it was a big one for the Gators with a comfortable spread. So it's kind of best of both worlds when you have a game that has that like March feel rivalry feel, but you still win comfortably. I mean, that's just, man, what, what more can you ask for? Yeah. You get that March feel. against St. Bonaventure where you get like 25 minutes where it's snip and tuck and then you make a big run and you can kind of breathe a little bit. Although I got to say, I think the bulk of, of Gator Nation was still terrified uh, down the stretch and, and you know, just, just, just because of the ghost of, of Blown Leads past maybe. Yeah, there's a there's a little bit of that feel. I mean, I, I would say I've probably had like th there have been games where I think I've been more scared, and I think that that was just largely due to the fact that it was just so clear that 
Florida State just did not have someone who could go and create a shot or someone that could really heat up. Like, I, I feel like some of the past games where, you know, Florida's had a comfortable lead and I still kind of feel it in the back of my throat that I'm like, oh man, there's, you know, maybe a chance that the Gators let someone back into this game. Just kind of the way that Florida defended mixed in with the Florida State roster. I don't know. I just, I, I, I almost felt comfortable about this one, even though I'm normally have that in the back of my head that it's just like, oh yeah, like, you know, no lead is safe in college basketball, but this felt a little different. Maybe I was just blissfully naive for one game, but at least it didn't burn me. Yeah. I mean, uh, um, you know, Florida did keep attacking, I think, uh, with the lead as well, which, we can debate whether or not there are personnel reasons to not to slow the game down, whatever you want. But I think, you know, just from a fan base standpoint, just watching kind of the pulse of people on Twitter, um, it seemed like folks were pleased that Florida was like, well, let's go get baskets and let's attack the rim. And we're not going to stand out at the top of the key and dribble. So there's 10 seconds left in the shot clock. Uh, and I think a lot of that probably, uh, help some people feel more comfortable too, Eric. Yeah, it's a good point. The style points were, were still there. And for a team that really won the game because of their defensive intensity in the half court, um, maybe that's one of those like tough to quantify, but when you watch it, you kind of know that if you take the arrow to the ball offensively, it's tough to then say like, okay, now we turn it on on the defensive end. But when you go through your offense just normally and you try to keep the pace up, then it doesn't feel weird to, get back on defense and play up intensity. So maybe that's kind of one of those, just uh, the human elements of basketball, just easier to easier to keep that intensity up defensively when you're going through your normal stuff offensively. Yeah. I thought um, starting with the first half, I mean, I thought Florida had a good game plan. Uh, certainly took away a lot of the things that Florida state does well uh, with their defense um, and, and still, because Florida State is such a grinding team, you know, they went into the half with, with a two-point lead. And I honestly kind of felt like there were moments, Eric, where it could have stretched out more than that. I'll get to that in a minute. But I just wanted your thoughts on Florida's defensive game plan uh, from the outset. Yeah, I mean, I think it was pretty cool to see an adjustment in their pick and roll defense. I mean, yeah, they still had their like low hedge that I don't love, but uh, they were icing those side ball screens. And I think for a team like Florida State that uh, is so athletic, you want to keep athletic guys out of the middle of the floor as much as you possibly can. So to see Florida do the icing of ball screens where uh, the guard gets on the top side of the screen, mm -hmm. so it doesn't allow the, the ball handler to get to the middle of the floor and instead kind of sends them down towards the, the sideline. I, I, I mean, I, I think it was something that Florida state wasn't prepared for. And I mean, like rightfully so, if you've watched Florida for six years, you've never seen them do that at all. So uh, I, no matter how much prep Leonard, Leonard Hamilton had, I mean, probably wasn't expecting to see that against Florida. And you kind of saw them again, like they were pretty content to kind of take the ice and drive to the baseline. And again, it, it wasn't like they got themselves into trouble or anything. It wasn't like it created a bunch of turnovers, but it took away that kind of lethal, just put your head down and drive into the paint that Florida state's athletes have been able to do. So just pretty awesome because it represents a couple of things. I mean, one, it's obviously was a strategy that ended up, working really well and getting a win, but it also shows that like Mike white is starting to make some, some changes. And um, I'll also say like icing side ball screens is kind of the, it's, it's, it's a cousin of dropping pick and roll coverage. They are somewhat related. So it maybe gives me some hope that we see uh, some other, uh, other changes to their pick and roll defense. 
Yeah, that's a great point. I think anytime you play FSU, you have to contain the dribble a little bit. And, um, you know, I thought Florida was, was really good at that. Uh, and, and just extremely aggressive with their on-ball defense, which, um, I mean, you know, you've, you've podcasted with me for four years, Eric, you know how I feel about ball pressure, uh, <laughs> defense. And it was kind of, it was kind of cool to see it. It's a staple of, of a lot of what Florida state does. Um, you know, it was interesting to hear Leonard Hamilton in his brief post-game remarks talking about how they kind of out-Florida stated us, <laughs> um, which I thought was true to some extent. Like, they certainly did some of the things that FSU does defensively uh, to be successful, um, which was nice. And, um, you know, so I thought that that was, was excellent. And even when Florida went into the the locker room down by two, the sense I had was, was that Florida was kind of outplaying Florida state, Eric. Um, and that Florida came when Florida got in a little bit of a funk offensively in the middle of the half. Uh, I think they got behind 2017 at one point. Um, and I thought a couple things happened there Eric, that, that I wanted to talk about. One was, uh, I thought Mike White made a really smart substitution of Tyree Appleby after Doug Schaus called a very poor blocking foul uh, on Tyree. And you could see that it really upset Tyree. And I thought that was really smart of Mike to sit him down and calm him down. And then Mike did it again on a ticky-tack reach-in foul right after he came back in. I thought both of those things were – were highly intelligent because he was letting, you know, kind of telling his guys, hey, stay in the moment. Don't let your emotions get the best of you. Because I thought Florida was obviously very juiced up to play, and that was a moment where FSU was playing its best. And, like, they just needed to stay connected um, in that thing in the first half. And I know we don't talk intangibles that much on the podcast, but I really felt like that was a coaching moment where substitutions made a difference. Yeah, there was like a, a foul that was called on Florida State really early where they got a touch foul. And it was one of those things where it's like, you know, Florida State was called for the foul. But I was like, I don't know if this is good for Florida because, again, Florida State being the the more athletic, kind of longer, more explosive team. It's like if they're calling fouls like this, it could be could be tough. And, yeah, there's definitely so, some moments like that. And, I, I, I mean, I've got to say, too, like Mike White showing some some faith in like Myron Jones and some of his other guys, because I, 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 there were some tough moments early. I thought with, with Myron Jones, who definitely turned it on in the second, but uh, I think we had a few of our moments where it was like the transfers from different conferences definitely looked like they were used to a different caliber of, of play. Like, like the first two passes that Myron Jones threw it, in the first minutes of the game were both deflected. They weren't turned over, but it was just like, yeah, you can get by with some like whatever six foot four, farmer from nebraska in the big 10 but you're not getting that against florida state and and my and uh you know brandon mckissick as well had a couple of those like put his head down and try to bully his way to the rim and like he just got bumped off and 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 you know left layup short and and uh of course flanders fleming had some moments where he just like started dribbling and didn't stop until he was you know until it turned into a turnover so there was definitely some moments where it's like oh man these these transfers are, are looking like transfers from other conferences but so when Tyree Appleby went out, I was like, oh man, I don't know if this is, I don't know if this is a good idea. Um, 
but you know, it ultimately, it ultimately worked out and uh, that they were able to kind of keep that intensity throughout the entire game. So um, maybe that was a, a good moment, Neil. I hadn't thought about that, but that could be, that could have been one of the turning points or uh, maybe a turning point that didn't happen because it could have been a turning point negatively. Well, I just thought Tyree was on the edge of, of letting him, his emotions get the best of him. And if I can see that on TV, then I felt like Mike White could certainly see that knowing his player. Um, and I thought that was good. The other thing that I noticed in that little stretch of the game, Eric, and, and I want to get back to your – okay, backing up. <laughs> yes, Myron Jones and Brandon McKissick clearly had not seen much of Florida – the likes of Florida State before. Uh, you can make those sorts of passes against Iowa. Um, there is a reason that FSU beat Iowa by like 35 points in a holiday tournament a couple years ago. <laughs> it just – no. Um, Luger Garza couldn't stop that with the ogre assembly guarding him. Um, <laughs> but you know, the other thing was, so, so getting back to that though, the Tyree Epley thing, why did Florida weather that? Why could Mike White do that? And you nailed it with showing confidence in some of his guys, but also Florida has multiple secondary ball handlers this season. That was very obvious. Uh, in yesterday's game, Flan Fleming, who I think is a little lost offensively, Eric, um, you know, or maybe he just doesn't feel quite well yet or whatever, but he seems to be a step behind where some of the other guys are running this offense. Um, still very capable as a ball handler and weathered the storm while Appleby was out. Myron Jones, we're seeing the immediate difference between him and Noah Locke, which is that Myron can break people down off the dribble and get into the lane and tends to make smart decisions with the ball. Uh, once he figured out that he couldn't be kind of lackadaisical uh, to your point. Um, and Brandon McKissick is obviously capable handling the ball. So it's not Trey man, uh, Keontae Johnson, Tyree Appleby and, and pray uh, anymore. Yeah, actually I think it's pretty interesting that this game definitely showed that uh Mike White sees Myron Jones as the backup point guard and not Brandon McKissick. I think a lot of us would have expected McKissick. Um, I certainly would have. I, I've got to say Myron Jones does look better with the ball in his hands than, than I thought he did looking at some of his film from um, Me too. the only thing that still is like, uh, again, well, this, this conversation will continue to happen throughout the year, but Myron Jones's love of the floater and mid-range jump shot is is the one thing that's kind of concerning when he keeps his dribble because he's like you know he's he's good enough to get it into those the kind of mid-range area. The problem is that's where he wants to stop. And we did see that too. Again, he still has kind of struggled to finish at the rim, which is kind of what we've seen. But you know, Neil, just kind of talking about the the talent of this team. Like, um, I'll first say Noah Lockstat. I don't want to like, you know. I, I love Noah Locke. I, I still wish he was a Gator for sure. It is interesting though. I looked at it just the other day of curiosity. So he's like through two games has ran 10 pick and rolls for, for Louisville. Um, they're over six with four turnovers with, with him in the small sample size, admittedly of, uh, of him running the, running the show there. And that's, you know, against a mid-major competition, they did lose to Furman, my favorite mid-major team. But uh, uh, so again, you see that and just like, it looks like probably Noah Locke still again, wouldn't have been able to, like I think it's safe to say he would he would have struggled in that capacity, and Myron Jones, you know, was 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 adequate. So that shows the difference. But you know, I, 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 here's a question for you, Neil. And again, I'm not not trying to disparage this this player, just out of genuine curiosity. So you know, we saw Scotty Lewis on the sideline for this game watching. If Scotty Lewis was on the Gators, 
how many minutes do you think he gets against against Florida State? If you if you just put him from last year onto this roster, how many minutes do you think he's playing? <laughs> well, I want to say 15 just because he's he's Scotty Lewis and he's the McDonald's All-American and they got to put him out there because of that. Like, and, and I'm not, I guess I am kind of standing for Niles Lane just a little bit because I do that and I'm sure it grows tiresome to people, but like he played four minutes and had a plus five, you know, like, so, uh, I mean, that would maybe be my better. Like Scotty probably plays 15 and has a plus two at best in that game. Yeah. Like I, I and again, I don't say that to d- disparage Scotty Lewis. I say it to just point out like this, the team's talent level and, and, and depth is just at the point where it's like, yeah, you know what? Like I would think Flanders Fleming would be ahead of the depth chart of, of a Scotty Lewis and a Brandon McKissick, I think would be ahead of the, so just kind of speaking about like how good this team is. And again, I know that some people just hate comparing you know, this team to, to past years and, and people can find that to be t- difficult to do. I don't know. Like it can be difficult, but kind of one of the easiest ways is just take a player that's not on this team and say, how many minutes would that guy get? And occasionally it's just like, oh man, you know, the other year, if, you know, Justin Leon was still on the roster, he'd be playing 30 minutes returning. Um, but then there's times where it's just like, man, like let's look at some of these players that played really well against, against Florida state. And it's like, man, like, you know, Scotty Lewis, I, he's somewhere in the Niles lane range of production. So um, just kind of while Florida was playing awesome basketball and I was pondering like, Hmm, I wonder how many minutes Noah Locke would get if he was still on this team, if Scotty Lewis was still on this team. Um, it got me pretty excited for, for this roster and uh, you know, some, some good optimism uh, moving forward for sure. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so Florida's down 30, 28. They come out, they get the first four points of the second half on just uh, some really nice work by Colin Castleton, kind of an effort bucket. And then he gets fouled and makes a couple free throws. I I was like sort of disappointed that he missed a couple layups. Jimmy Dyke said he got got sped up. And on one of them, I was like, I don't really think he got sped up, Jimmy. I think he just blew by the guy and missed the layup. But, um, you know, I, the Jimmy Dykes experience was back in full effect uh, Sunday. Um, shout out to you can be cool or you can be good. I don't even know what the hell that meant, but um, man, that was the most boomer thing I've ever heard on a telecast. And <laughs> so just early, early boomer award of the year to Jimmy Dykes. You, you can be cool or you can be good. Like, I don't even know what that means, um, but <laughs> uh, I I should say now that I, I really love Jimmy Dykes' passion for the game, and I think that he explains some concepts better than a lot of people out there. Um, but I also find like him to talk over the game too much sometimes. And so I have a love-hate relationship with Jimmy Dykes, who's a very nice man, by the way, and has listened to Florida Basketball Hour on occasion. Um, <laughs> I just went on a fun, a way big, long tangent to talk about how Florida started the second half, which I thought was really well, especially defensively, Eric. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll throw it to something for, uh, from Jimmy Dykes. I mean, one thing that I, I will say something so funny about Jimmy Dykes to me is just like, he's ready to drop a sermon at like any moment. Like we're talking like what, whatever, like whatever's going on in the game. And so he's like, you know, sometimes God gives people stuff that they, they don't think they're prepared for, but Leonard Hamilton, he's someone who was gifted with something. And I was just like, wow, this is a, 
this is a transition for sure. But I, I, I've got to say one thing about Jimmy Dykes last year. Um, he was he was the guy who stand Anthony DeRuji harder than anyone when DeRuji was not playing very good basketball. Um, Jimmy Dykes thought he was just incredible. And uh, now, now Anthony DeRuji is playing, you know, a lot better for sure. And, uh, you know, good for Jimmy Dykes. He was on him. He was on it first. Well, you know, I, I think I was on it first looking at, you know, his Louisiana tech stuff. But um, then I was a little bit off of him last year for sure. But, uh, but he's back. And I mean, again, I still think there's moments with Anthony DeRuji and we saw it against Florida state where, it's still just like, man, you're six foot seven and long and so athletic. Like, how are you not better guarding on the perimeter? And there's still some of those moments, but there's also those moments where it's like his recovery ability to pin a shot on the glass or uh, get out in a passing lane or uh, stay stout kind of flipping in onto a, onto a bigger player. Like I I thought he had some good moments again. Like there's still some like one-on-one perimeter stuff that he's just like weirdly not great at but there's still just like again some of that like recovery ability is just incredible and he had some of those effort plays that really kind of uh kept things going for florida yeah i thought uh two key moments from anthony deruji in the first 10 minutes of the second half uh, he fsu had gotten the offensive board and he comes up and pins that shot by polite uh that anthony polite never saw him i don't think and, you know, how could you? He came from, like, the free throw line, pins that on the glass, Florida comes back the other way. Uh, I will get to that in in just a moment um, because I thought that that was – well, no, that was one of them. The other one was when he dove on the floor. There's seven seconds left in the shot clock. Uh, Florida State had rescreened to start their set. Jeruji uh, fights through it, dives for the ball, with shades of Patrick Young against Tennessee. Um, and Florida gets a shot clock violation. And it was, like, right there in a tie game. They go to the media timeout after that, so everybody kind of has a moment to kind of marinate on that effort play, and I just think that's so huge. It's weird. I mean, like, we don't fixate on, on intangibles a lot on Florida basketball hour, but uh, there were a lot of effort plays yesterday, and, and you know, you heard the guys after the game talking about what it meant to play for Keontae and stuff. I think there was a lot of juice uh, on the team yesterday, but I'm not certain that it's just going to be, you know, isolated to this game. When Mike White talked about the chemistry this summer and about having a veteran group that wanted to win, you kind of saw that with some of these plays. Yeah, I think that the you kind of know it's for real just because it's something we've like seen from these kind of guys all along in their careers like we've seen Tyree Appleby and Colin Castleton at Florida of course being some of the more energetic players and and kind of vocal leaders but it's like yeah we saw Flanders Fleming play like this at Charleston Southern while his team was getting blown out by 30 every game so like if he shows the effort then like you know of course he's gonna get up for against Florida State um in the O-Dome especially with everything going on and same as Brandon McKissick like teams losing by 15 every night and he's still dogging the ball handler 94 feet and uh that I, like it's, it, it makes me think it's for real because again there's some moments and I think we've even seen that with Florida the last couple of years where there were some early season kind of moments where it was like oh man like look this team really gets up for a big time you know how do we put this subtly big time opponents in big time preseason tournaments but then struggles to put it together in a regular conference game like that just doesn't seem to be the case for these guys. Cause it's like, man, if you see them play like dogs when they're getting blown out by 15 in a mid-major conference, I don't, I don't think there's going to be any, any struggles for motivation the rest of the season here at Florida. No, I don't either. And so coming out of this media timeout that we mentioned, and 
Uh, it's a good time, I think, just to bring up Colin Castleton because, uh, look, obviously just a monster game. Denver Parler tweeted out the stat. He joins Joe Kim Noah and the, like, uh, double-double with five blocks club. I mean, it's pretty ridiculous. Um, pretty ridiculous stat line against the Ogre Assembly, as I as I <laughs> enjoyed calling it. Um, I mean, granted, they were without, like, their largest Ogre, but they still had, like, Shrek and his buddies um, out <laughs> there. But, but it wasn't just the stat line. Like, Colin did everything else right, Eric. He... Um, you know, I mean, take take the bucket after a ball reversal where Myron Jones, who you mentioned, didn't make things in the first half, and we were a little worried. Like the one layup that he finishes, Colin Castleton seals off and walls off the help, and Myron Jones is able to get the basket at the rim. That makes it 37-36. And I really think just seeing the ball go in meant everything because they came down to possession later. And Jones hits a three off the bounce. Um, and from there, it was like off to the races for Myron. But it's that that's the influence that Colin had on the game, not just blocking shots, not just rebounding. Just everything he was doing influenced the game, it seemed like. Oh, yeah. And again, for Florida, the way that they play play offense now, playing the five out kind of stuff, it's, it's he's touching the ball on pretty much every possession. And the ball can't really die with him. And I think we saw maybe against Elon and how some teams will guard Florida as you throw it into that five man, the someone's going to sag off. They're not going to be as concerned with Colin Castleton shooting, or they'll invite that kind of shooting. Um, but that's not the case with Florida state. Like they would enter the ball to him and someone would be up in his face, kind of daring him to drive. And I almost got more aggressive with a couple of those missed lamps that you mentioned earlier. So uh, it wasn't like anything was like easy for him, like getting eight offensive rebounds against, Florida State is ridiculous. I would have never believed it until it happened for him to get six blocks. Like like you mentioned, like he joins the company of Jokey Noah and Patrick Young, but you know, it was, you know, Patrick Young against I think Savannah State, uh, which I'm guessing wasn't Florida State level ogres. So it's just like it, it was incredible because like nothing, nothing was easy. Like it, his his points, his passing, his rebounds, his his block shots, every part of it was was tough because it was against Florida state. So uh, it's just super impressive. And, and, and again, this is like so early, it's like almost stupid that I'm even bringing it up, but I do think it's cool that right now in like Ken Palm's player of the year algorithm, um, Colin Castleton is fifth. And I just don't think in my like history of subscribing to Ken Palm, I've ever seen the number next to a, to a Florida player's name that like puts him in the top 10 of player of the year kind of algorithm stuff. But um Definitely the the metrics will see it. Yes, getting six blocks against Florida State and eight offensive rebounds, that's um that's incredible. Yeah, I did not I actually didn't subscribe when Scotty Wilbekin was like floating around ninth. Mm. Um and I know uh I know Chandler Chandler Parsons was probably in that area too, but uh you're absolutely right. It's pretty wild that that even after two games, it's um that that's something that that was going down, you know, so I thought those were, those were just kind of like moments of the game that I circled was getting Jones that first bucket at 40, 39, Florida ends up down 44 to 43 near about the nine minute mark. The Gators uh, finished the game on a 28 to nine run. Um, if you want to call it that, Eric, uh, and you know, it, it, at the center of that, I guess, was the fact that Myron Jones finally got going. He led the team with a plus 19 um, on the floor. But I also think 
you know, Florida just did a good job of being persistent and intentional in its game plan. They were able to attack some closeouts really well. They continued to reverse the ball very well. Uh, they didn't settle for that first side of the floor pass and jump shot um, that we saw a little too often at times last year um, or with the ball dominant guard. Just picking the roll percentage number was because I don't know if it was above or below 11.6 against Elon, but it had to be like not super high. <laughs> well, now Florida is at 18% of their possessions on the season. So I, I think that there was actually like a sneaky number of pick and roll possessions against, uh, against Florida state. If it was like, you know, it was 11% against Elon or whatever. And now it's up to 18. So, you know, it's 20 something probably against Florida state. I didn't actually look at it. I wasn't prepared for that, but um, it didn't kind of, feel like it i guess and that's because there was it wasn't like everything like came to a halt um and with like really slow okay everyone spread out okay here's a ball screen and the possession okay. will die at the end of this ball screen so uh, maybe even you know maybe that's the the takeaway here is florida ran a decent number of ball screens without it feeling like they did where last year or in the andrew nemar years you were very aware of every ball screen that was happening um a, a couple notes about both myron jones and Colin Castleton and Florida's offensive rebounding on the whole. I mean, one thing I thought was hilarious when Myron Jones hit that first shot because it like left the stratosphere for two seconds and for sure left the, left the frame of the camera. Um, it was just such a like high arcing shot. I thought that was pretty funny. Like he does shoot that way, but also, uh, is it like after having two of his jump shots blocked by Florida state for him to just be like, okay, I'm just throwing this up to, you know, the heavens, um, where it's not getting blocked. And then it obviously fell, but, um, Scotty Lewis style. Yeah. Um, so a couple of notes there. One thing I think was like very <laughs> clever. Oh, I don't remember what his name is. The the Penn State big man who uh, Myron Jones does the podcast with. Uh, John Harar, I think his name is. I feel bad I'm forgetting. But anyways, when Colin Castleton was on that podcast, he said something really interesting to Colin Castleton. And he said, hey, here's a hint for offensive rebounding Myron Jones shots. He Because he shoots with, uh, shoots it so high in the air. It's usually the guy who jumps first that doesn't get the rebound. He told Castleton, you want to be the second guy to leave the floor on Myron Jones jump shots and seeing the amount of arc and the amount of like back rims that Myron Jones gets when he does miss like all of those rebounds. That was totally the case. If you jump first, you're not getting that rebound And Florida state was jumping first and, uh, and, and Castleton was getting it. So I do think that's just like an interesting note for Florida's offensive rebounding. And as it relates to Myron Jones shooting, I think John Harar might've just, said something absolutely brilliant that every Florida player should heed that when Myron Jones shoots, you want to be the second guy to jump. <laughs> and, uh, but, and then one more thing slightly related when it comes to Florida's offensive rebounding, I think the five out spacing is actually really good for offensive rebounding. I know Florida had some good moments the last couple of years where they would actually do like the opposite and they would run pick and rolls with like either Omar Payne sitting in the dunker spot or Colin Castleton ducking in. And they got a bunch of offensive rebounds because it was always one of those guys around the hoop. They definitely had some of those moments, but against Florida state with the five out spacing, it's one of those things where the defense is so spread out that when there's a shot from the perimeter, it's like no one's in good rebounding position. So it feels like a 50, 50 ball. So it's going to be kind of interesting to see where I feel like we got some of those like free runs from like Anthony Deruji from the corner and Flanders Fleming from the wing and, Con Castleton just running straight down the middle of the, fo the floor because he was beyond the three-point line when a shot went up. It's just like, just another thing to, to monitor as we know that Florida is going to go hard after the glasses. Like the, another benefit of this five-out spacing could actually be their offensive rebounding.
Yeah, I think those are some really excellent points. And by the way, it was an eight offensive rebound advantage, I think. Um, so when you look at the overall, I think Florida out-rebounded FSU by 11. And so they had eight more um, on the offensive glass than FSU. So it was pretty even Steven on the defensive glass, but it's the offensive glass where Florida kind of made a living. And um, I mean, hell, if you'd told me that the Gators were going to out-rebound FSU by 11, I, I don't know what I would have said to you, uh, but, <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, it was pretty cool that that happened uh, on the offensive glass as effective as it did. We had that number. The other thing I wanted to get to, well, I guess one, two more points I want to make is, is one, I do think the five out spacing against teams that are going to pressure the ball the way FSU does um, that backdoor five is going to be open on almost every single ball reversal, Eric. And it was throughout the first half. I think Florida actually missed it a few times. Um, hopefully that's something that they can clean up as the season goes on. Um, so that that would be point A. And then point B, uh, kind of losing my – actually, we'll just – we'll stick with that because I feel like I've lost my uh, train of thought on what point B was. And if I remember, I'll, I'll come back to it. Yeah, well, I mean, I really like the – obviously, I went after the first podcast against Elon and – or the first game against Elon. We podcast. We both said we liked the offense, and I went on Twitter and said I like the offense. And there's some people, especially on Twitter, when I, like, posted some of the sets with that were just like, oh, well, we'll see how it works against, you know, Florida State. And, you know, in fairness, it obviously wasn't, like, awesome against Florida State, but Florida's awesome defensively. And, and again, just the fact that it, like, worked to some extent, that was pretty good. I, I think that's got to be pretty encouraging. And uh, – again, Florida is really only kind of like scratching the surface of, of what they can do out of it. So if it even, you know, does, does well enough, they're over a point per possession against Florida state, like pretty, pretty encouraging. So uh, there's, there's definitely, there's definitely a lot to like when it's like, you know, we're liking the first shot offense and we think it's going to get more offensive rebounds. It's like, well, this is a, it's clear why a lot of teams do the five out stuff. There's, there's no question. Oh, the other point I wanted to make was, my uh, projection of 12 to 15 turnovers. And then I wanted to applaud uh, Florida finishes with 15, but I wanted to applaud Eric's point because I thought Eric's point on the preview was, well, yeah, 12 to 15 is probably the right range, Neil, but what we want is the right kind of turnovers. Florida had a lot of like the right kind of turnovers. Um, I thought <laughs> they had a couple like desperation triples where like a guy clawed for a rebound and it went out of bounds on a dead ball. Uh, they had a couple offensive fouls. Like there wasn't a whole lot of showtime transition stuff for FSU. There was uh, one, I think, nice transition dunk that they had on kind of the wrong kind of turnover. Uh, that came in the first half. Um, and then there was a Wyatt Wilkie's three. Uh, he has the sweetest mullet in the ACC, I think. Um, I mean, it is awesome. Uh, but they, they found him on a ball reversal, uh, weak side of the floor in transition. There just wasn't a lot of it. And that's because Florida kind of had the right kind of turnovers to quote Eric. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, uh, it, it broke that way for them. And then again, there's something that like, it's kind of one of those like chicken or the egg things or whatever, but like if Florida scores and they can set their defense. So it's like yeah. sometimes their best defense is offense. Like if you score, you set your defense or you hit your second free throw, you set your defense. Like um, actually I will say uh, we don't need to get into it too much. I mean, unless you have a take Neil, but um, 
when Florida was like completely stifling Florida state in their half court offense. And then they went to press that one possession. And then there was like the most casual moment. They saw the pressure coming from Florida and Leonard Hamilton just like casually put up two fingers from the bench and everyone kind of nodded. And like everyone on the floor took like one or two strides to their left or the right. And then it was just like inbound pass, pass, pass dunk. And it was just like, great. So that's one thing I'm still like, I mean, there was a lot that I wrote about (laughs) a couple of years ago. And I might just have to like reissue those articles, man. I'm still skeptical again about that working again. We'll see later in the season, you know, (laughs) but it was just like the most casual thing in the world where like Florida state was just like, okay, like, Oh, they're pressing. Let's run this. And then they just like meticulously in like five seconds had a dunk. And it was just like, okay, let's, let's not, maybe not do that. So we'll we'll see if we'll see how much the press is a part of it. But uh, I think think I, I tweeted it out. I've got to go find the number, but. Um, just to really drive home the the facts of um, just how well Florida defended. But, you know, Florida State was like their normal kind of self. and Well, not even their normal self. They're amazing in transition. Um, but I think they're at 1.14 points for possession in transition against the Gators, which is like actually like an average-ish transition number um, just because transition buckets are always like higher value. But then I think they're at 0.61 points for possession in the half court. So, again, for a Florida standpoint, I just wonder if like – if you can be aware of those types of things in games, be like, Hey, Florida state's at 0.61 points per possession in the half court. Why would we press and give them an opportunity to like do anything, but go against our half court defense? Yeah, no, I think that's a great point, Eric. Um, And I also thought that it was interesting that that little half press, that was the first half dunk. Uh, I will point out that when Niles Lane came in on that half court Mm. press, he was able to step to, he was able to step to the guy um, Caleb Mills, who was in the center of the floor and Mills kind of freaked out and threw his pass a little too early. And it was intercepted by Myron Jones led to a Florida three on the other end. But that was like the one moment where that little half press, uh, seemed to, to work. And that was because Niles Lane was in, I think, um, and his athleticism <laughs> kind of compensated for the fact that Florida's floor spacing was suddenly terrible. Um, so, uh, those were just kind of, I guess our thoughts on, on, you know, both the halves, I did want to answer a couple of listener questions before we preview the Milwaukee, uh, Wisconsin, Milwaukee game. Uh, Tim, Timmy at Humphrey book it asks, uh, Appleby didn't shoot great, but the bot score says five assists, one turnover um, is what did you think of his game and what's he look like going forward? Um, I, you know, and I'll say this real quick before I turn it over to Eric. Like I thought his game was very positive considering we haven't even mentioned the flu and we're 37 minutes into this podcast. Um, so the whole program had the flu. Uh, Tyree Appleby was one of the first ones to get the flu. And also, as Eric might have mentioned on the preview, this is maybe the worst matchup for Tyree Appleby that he'll have all year, um, you know, depending on what you think of Kentucky. And five assists, one turnover, just did a really nice job of keeping himself under control, I thought. Yeah, I thought Tyre Appy was really good. Like, even, again, despite the shots not falling, I, I thought he took good shots. Some of them are ugly, but it's like, hey, we know he can make shots. I'm, I was just more happy that he was able to get that quality of shot against the Florida State defense. So I had no problem with it. And, again, I was, like I said earlier, I didn't really care what the box score said. I thought he played well. And when he left the game, I was just like, oh, man, let's see if Florida is able to generate a shot with him off the floor. So – uh, so I thought he was really good. I mean, and then just one quick thing on the, the flu. If you're looking for an even more optimistic 
outlook from from the Gators or another optimistic takeaway is like I still think I still think Quasey Reeves is going to be really good. He obviously you know didn't really play, and uh, uh, CJ Felder again I don't know if he was already injured. We talked about that from the exhibition or whatever, where it seemed like he couldn't jump off the floor. But you know we think he's going to be really good, and he didn't really play. So if it's like hey, you've got this like obviously really good performance, guys played great. There's still some uh, still some other pieces that could be added to the puzzle. Yeah, that was actually the next question was from uh, Nick Bach at Nick Bach 22. So do you guys have a read on CJ Felder's role? Uh, did the flu limit his minutes yesterday? Was that what we'll see of him moving forward? I, and I really do think the flu absolutely limited his minutes. Um, and like Mike White, you know, said, actually Mike White really didn't mention it. It was like Chris Harry was like, oh yeah, everybody on the programs had the flu. Um you know, there wasn't a long soliloquy at a press conference after a loss where a coach who will not be named may have said, like, well, we all had the flu and it's just really hard and there's lots of adversity. And, you know, so it was just kind of a Chris Harry report and like, OK, well, we're moving on. Um, and I think that's good. But I definitely think impact C.J. Felder, like there's just a zero percent chance that a guy who like practically had a double double against FSU last year uh, wasn't playing significant minutes if he felt well. Yeah, no, no kidding. And again, I still like we'll still see. I thought Jason Jatobo when he was in was was okay, but I, I still think there's going to be times where CJ Felder at the five is a lineup that I think will be really good for the Gators. Um, there's even going to be times where like. I, I have no idea if we have more listener questions, so I won't totally make this smooth transition. We will definitely not cut listener questions short on this podcast. We never will. But, you know, Patrick Baldwin is the kind of guy that I think would be a really good matchup for, for CJ Felder like that. And again, you just look at the SEC yeah. with some of these six foot nine athletic, you know, yeah, six, nine, two twenty guys that can play on the perimeter and also take it inside a little bit. Like there's, there's matchups all over the schedule where I see CJ Felder as being really good for us. So I, again, I'm still like questioning and like, is is he healthy is he injured and that's not even flu related that's again going back to the exhibition where it seemed like he couldn't jump um that's just not what cj felder is is was like last year but um on the assumption he's back to um someone that of course like neil was able to get some some pretty cool quotes from uh, from leonard hamilton regarding his ability to defend it's like yeah that's that's a guy that i think will will have a role Yeah, no, I think he will. Our last question is, uh, we always love it when we get a question from her. So I had a, a DM question from Sarah in Tampa Bay, and she said, uh, it's for Eric, I guess. I'm not worthy of answering said question. I'm not really sure what I did, but uh, <laughs> uh, she went 7 of 15 from 3. Um, Eric, why why didn't they shoot more threes? Was Florida doing something to take that away? I don't think I don't think Florida is doing anything to take it away. Honestly, like, well, again, like the the threes they were getting were like pick and pop, and having their um, seven foot whatever Butler, who looks like he's going to be a problem to play against in the future. So you know, Florida fans maybe can't get too excited about getting one back in this rivalry, but uh, uh, you know, Malik Osborne pick and pop, like that's something that Florida is very vulnerable to in their pick and roll defense. Um, 
so, so those opportunities were there. It's just like, they, the fact that was just kind of one thing that was interesting about their threes were like, okay, like I think three of them were from Malik Osborne, you know, he's six foot nine. And then was like three of them from John Butler, or maybe only two of them, but you know, he's seven foot, whatever, super tall. So it's like Florida does really well in their defensive scheme to run wings. Seven foot one, baby. Oh, wow. I, I thought, I thought he was taller. I know maybe it's the hair, but, um, uh, yeah, again, like I think Florida's <laughs> scheme, Florida's scheme is really good for for running guards and wings off the three point line, and we saw that. But that wasn't really the peop, that wasn't really the players that were were getting free for three for for Florida State. So, um, I do think that Florida State, like again, looking at the way that they couldn't get anything going in the half court, um, the way that Florida was guarding pick and rolls, um, yeah, I would have picked pick and pop Malik Osborne a thousand times, truthfully. There you go. Sarah always asks a really good question. So it's always good to get um, her insight onto things. And I was glad to see her shout out that the McRib was back on Twitter tonight, too. I felt <laughs> like that was an, an important PSA for just everybody. Wow. I mean, between uh, football and Mike White now winning, Sarah in Tampa is absolutely like she is in her bag on Twitter. And now that, you know, it's McRib season two. It's just, <laughs> I, I wasn't aware of that, but I'll have to I'll have to look out for that. But she's definitely thriving on Twitter in these <laughs> seasons. She's living her best life right now, for sure. <laughs> um, <laughs> we're gonna see if the Gators can keep that going because the classic Mike White thing to do, and and I mean this with with respect, uh, would be to lose a bye game to Milwaukee on Thursday night. Um, now. Two things kind of hedge against that happening. One, Florida is better than Milwaukee. Two, Florida is old and grisly, and for the first time since the Elite Eight season, has a team in the top 100 in experience. And it's just hard to see them losing that much focus, Eric. Still, uh, this is a dangerous Milwaukee team. Uh, um, Out of the Horizon League, uh, obviously – Brandon McKissick knows that league quite well, um, but he's not a guy that I guess uh, it is McKissick that's from that league, right? No, he's McKissick from is Summit. from the Summit League. Um, Tyree Appleby, former Horizon League star. <laughs> Tyree Appleby knows. <laughs> Tyree Appleby, terrible error, terrible fact error. Tyree the Summit Appleby, and the Horizon, uh, I mean, thematically similar. Yeah, thematically, very, very similar. Anyway, uh, so Milwaukee, kind of a middle-of-the-pack Horizon League program last year, but uh, they bring in the number five consensus recruit in the country, Patrick Baldwin Jr. Uh, I mean, I guess this kind of probably goes without saying, but the highest-rated player to ever sign with a Horizon League program. Uh, He's six foot ten. He can take it to the basket. He's long. He can defend. He's a good rebounder. And I think maybe what I like most about him, Eric, is just his ability to get through the bat to the basket and how crafty he is. Um, for someone his size, he's just so fluid uh, and, and a really special player, guaranteed to be a one and done, a lottery pick. I hope people go because it's a really cool opportunity to see somebody like that up close. Oh, yeah. I mean, even in obviously the Gators playing in the sec, you're used to seeing lottery level guys. It's like, well, Pat Baldwin's a, he's better than a lot of them. Like he's that way we, that we've seen in the sec recently, like Patrick Baldwin uh, jr. Is, is like, is truly special. And and one thing that's pretty crazy is like, you talked about how good he is and, and how, how much you love his game. And like, you didn't even mention the fact that he's kind of known as 
well, he came into college and throughout his kind of career is, is known as a shooter. He was kind of known as someone who could, uh, you, you know, really stroke it. And at least in his first two college games, he hasn't even shot the ball that well. And he's still like at 20 and 10, just being dominant because he's so good at handling the ball despite being so big. Um, one story I just have to bring up once again, because it is like, so so funny to me and still the more i think about it the funnier it is but so you know his father patrick baldwin senior is the coach in milwaukee milwaukee has had a couple losing seasons in a row he was known for being on the hot seat then his son um signs to play with him and the next day like 12 hours later his agent was on twitter saying we will now be negotiating a extension to the contract and i just thought that was the funniest power move ever to be like trying to leverage you get getting a five-star to Milwaukee when it's your son and you've had a bunch of losing seasons in a row. I thought it was hilarious. But um, I, again, yes. in terms of Mike White maybe losing a bye game following a big win, it's like with all due respect to Patrick Baldwin Sr., in kind of looking at some of their games from last year and watching the last couple, I I, I can't say I'm awfully impressed from a schematic standpoint in, in what they do. And, I, I you know, they did lose one that I thought was – pretty disappointing they lost to eastern kentucky the other day eastern kentucky pretty good mid-major team but again if you're like trying to be a you know a upper tier horizon league team even that's just like not a not a not a not a loss you can really take so uh generally speaking too just looking at the first couple of games for for milwaukee they play super fast this is actually kind of funny relevant relative to like what they what florida just did against florida state like 26% of their shots through the first two games have been in transition and they've done really well in transition. And then just like Florida state, they've been really bad in the half court. And and I think a lot of that is that teams have been just like loading up on Patrick Baldwin jr. But uh, he's someone who, yeah, if he gets a defensive rebound, he can push it and he can score, but they just don't have a lot of options around him. So it's like, yeah, if he's suddenly like, if he's the screener in a screener role, you can just hug him and, and, try to challenge that guard to get in the paint and finish. And you just don't let Patrick Baldwin pick and pop. Or if he's off the ball, you can just stick with them and play four on four with everyone else. Like if Florida just really wants to take care of business, I think it starts with like, just keep them out of transition, make it a half court game. Yeah. I thought the guys at three men, we did a really nice job of, of talking about like how you can potentially defend Milwaukee without even seeing them play before, which is like, one thing that makes their previews so amazing is like Eric, they're so tapped into the synergy and, and analytics that they get a good idea of it. And they mentioned the fact that uh, Tayon Lucas, their point guard from last year, who was really one of their best players transferred to BYU. And it has kind of complicated things a little bit because even with Baldwin being kind of a point forward, um, they're not, you know, necessarily a team that has, a real traditional point guard. They do have a guard named DeAndre Goldston, who's pretty good. Um, another player I actually like is is uh, or I liked him when he was at Boston College and healthy is Vin Baker Jr. Uh, for those that don't know, yes, or for those that do know, yes, it is Vin Baker's uh, son, the assistant coach with the Milwaukee Bucks, a former top ten lottery pick himself. Um, long career at the Boston Celtics is. Crazy what's going on in Milwaukee. They just have an assembly of yeah, NBA connections coming to town. But um, they don't really have a primary point guard. And I think that that against this Florida team is also kind of problematic, Eric. Yeah, I was just looking at Sarah and Tampa tweets. I wanted to see the, what she was exactly saying with the McRib. And I see that she's actually tonight also starting to watch Squid Game. And I'm just like the biggest Squid Game fan. So Sarah and Tampa truly is living her best life if she's just finally getting to, into Squid Game. Um, best life. But, 
Yeah. <laughs> but uh, again, another thing that I think is, uh, I kind of mentioned about uh, um, just the way that those first kind of games have, have went for, uh, for Milwaukee is like, they also got pressed a bunch in the, against Eastern Kentucky and uh, that did not go well for them. And again, it's kind of one of those things where uh, not a lot, like you've got this like physical Marvel in Patrick Baldwin, who's just like, exactly what you'd want out of an NBA um, foreman. But then, yeah, other than that, they, they played, you know, multiple kind of smaller guards and um, kind of guys that just, that, that really struggle to, to break pressure. And I do see as much as I was like, I don't know how much you want to play uh, press at the high major level. It's like, if you want to be a pressing team, like, yeah, maybe do it against, against, uh, against Milwaukee and, and see if you can, you know, generate those turnovers that are going to fire up your team and, and do that. But um what do you what do you kind of see in in a game like this? Is this like something you want to see particularly from Florida and like improvements from what you've seen? Do you have more respect for Milwaukee to the point that you don't think this should be anything they need to like work on or or mix in or like try more of their one three one? Like what what do you see this from like a, a game script kind of standpoint? Uh, you know I wouldn't like to see so i still think i think it's too early in the year to shorten the bench um so i really would like to see florida play the 10 or 11 that they played against elon um and that means that patrick ball and jader gets five to seven points against florida's eight through 12 that's okay um to me eric so i would say that first of all um the other thing I would also like to see is, you know, I, I do think we, I, I hinted at it a little earlier. Like I do, whether it's, it's flu related or whether it's that he was so ball dominant at Charleston Southern because he had to be, or whatever the reason is, I'd like to see them try to get Flan Fleming a little more comfortable in the offense, even if that means running some stuff for him um, just to try to get him going. I, like, I mean, uh, that's another thing you could point to as a positive in winning the Florida State game, Eric, was that they won this game against FSU and like Tyree Appleby was two of 10 and Flam Fleming was like three of 11. Uh, so I think that would check a box for me. And then a third box to check, which gets kind of relates back to number one. But like, let's see if we could limit Colin Castleton's minutes a little bit. I hate to do that. I hate to not respect the opponent, but I'd love to keep him under 30 if possible. Yeah, I mean, he's had a couple of times where he's also like seems to have like just came down on his ankle in a way that was mildly concerning for a guy that's had some ankle problems. So it's even like not really like a rest related thing, but when it comes to something like that, it's just like, hey, can we like just limit his reps by, you know, 16 possessions and give it like 16 less chances for him to like maybe tweak an ankle? Um, one thing that I think is pretty interesting is like right after Patrick Baldwin committed, um, they uh, they were able to get a, a former Illinois player. I forget where he played before, but I know he committed to to Illinois named Moses Bowl. No, not Moses Bowl. That's the other um, uh, Samba Kane. And then they also who's seven foot. And then they also have a seven foot one player named Moses Bowl who committed right after Patrick Baldwin committed. So they actually have some like seven footers who don't play a lot. Like both of those guys were like six to fifteen minute a game guys um, in their first couple of games. But it's like. Hey, Jason Jatobo, like you're still trying to carve out a role and earn minutes and you've got a bit of an opportunity to do it with CJ Felder out. I, I would love to say like, Hey, here's a, here's a good matchup for, for Jason Jatobo. Let's see if he can get out for some extended minutes and, and see what he can do. Because again, I think a lot of people are like waiting to see exactly what Jason Jatobo can do. And 
Florida State, obviously not exactly the the time to do that, but um, Milwaukee, but against some seven footers, uh, that could be the that could be the chance. Yeah, great point. So I'm a Kane, also a guy with Florida roots. Played at uh, Florida Academy, and which used to be Florida Air Academy. Walter Hodge uh, is from there, and then um, went over to IMG actually to finish his his time at IMG, playing for uh, Pete Munch, um, who uh, is is one of the guys over there that's a friend of the podcast. Uh, Samba is is a guy that Florida talked to um, a couple years ago, so some familiarity with him. Um, he's playing about eight minutes a night for them uh, right now, and, and I think that's going to be about right because uh, they do tend to want to go a little bit smaller. It'll be interesting to see if they shuffle their lineups. I'm a little bit surprised that, like, Samba Kane and Moses Wool aren't actually playing more. Like, you would think that they'd want to just get a lot of big people out. Like, I'm a little curious as to what Patrick Baldwin Sr. is doing with his rotations. Maybe they'll get bigger in the Horizon League. That sure would make sense to me um, to be big and athletic in that league when you have a lottery pick and just overwhelm people. But they're not doing that right now, and hopefully uh, they don't start Thursday night because as much as it was nice to see Florida man up, I still think those are kind of going to be the teams that give the Gators a little bit more uh, of an issue this season. They are shooting some some quick facts on, on the Panthers. They're shooting 29% from three-point range, Eric. Uh, that's not going to get it done. Uh, I don't think against the Gators, they are a pretty good rebounding team. Um, at least, at least in their first two games, they've out rebounded everybody despite playing smaller lineups. Maybe that's why they think they can get away with it. Uh, and then their second leading scorer uh, is DeAndre Golston, who I mentioned, um, kind of a bucket getter, more of a scorer than a shooter at at 19 points um, a game, and uh, a guy that was honorable mention. All Horizon League. It's certainly their second most talented player, I would say. Yeah, it's been the case so far for sure. And again, like Patrick Baldwin Jr., he has not shot the ball well yet. Again, he's I think he's shot like I think he's shot eight threes a game for both of those their two openers. And some of them were just like kind of late clock heaves or desperation heaves. Like uh, I think he's a better shooter than that. So I think once those numbers, once he starts hitting more shots, their their numbers will go up pretty quickly. So um again pretty interesting player like for florida to have like a how do you scheme primarily concerned with this one player at this kind of role like they've had the like scotty pippins of the world and like some of these teams with like really talented um guard scores but it's like uh well you know how do they do against a player like this who's like kind of plays like the kevin o'banner role but with more athleticism and not quite as proven of a shooter but definitely the pedigree of that like we saw like kevin o'banner kind of have a really good game against skaters in the NCAA tournament. Um, he, you know, Patrick Baldwin doesn't have a Max Aismas to, to play alongside, but uh, uh, curious to see if Florida does anything different, especially in their pick and roll defense, just to, just because they should be super concerned with that pick and pop. Yeah, I agree. Um, just so you guys know, we do have um, the, uh, we have the over under on this game on Patrick Baldwin. So somebody will put a point on the board. Um, after this one, although I think did we? No, we actually have. There's a chance for somebody to put a point on the board on this one because uh, Eric took the under and I took the over. I think um, Eric has the master spreadsheet, but anyway, it was I think it was over under 16 points uh, for Patrick Baldwin Jr. And um, you know he's he's averaging a little bit more than that right now, as as Eric knows, but he also hasn't played uh, a team of Florida's caliber yet. 
that could either inspire him greatly uh, or prove to be kind of a growing pains game. We will see, uh, but somebody will post a point. And I'm also going to add real quick before I flip that over to Eric that um, I'm really excited to preview this Fort Myers tournament just because Seton Hall kind of like, looks like gangbusters early in the season. Um, and so all of a sudden this is like a really fantastic little tournament. Oh yeah, definitely. There's a chance for, uh, for some good games. And, um, also it's like, it's nice when you play those teams that are like going to be really good games, but you also kind of like Florida's chances in it, like not terrifying games, but, but ones that also offer some, offer some, you know, really good chances at, uh, at wins and, you know, Seton Hall just always seems to defend so, so well. So, and that's definitely the case this year. So, uh, that could be another grind for this Florida team who loves to defend as well, but it was in fact, 16.5 points. Um, for Patrick Baldwin Jr., uh, you said over, I said under, and uh, he's averaging 20 points per game, but isn't even shooting the ball well yet. So, you know, part of it's like, well, he hasn't played a team like Florida, but it's also like, well, it's 20 points per game. He hasn't even shot well yet. So we will see how it goes. Sounds fantastic. Thank you all for joining this Florida basketball. We're going to come in at just under an hour. And what I will say after the way that Florida was able to do it against Florida State is go Gators and keep attacking closeouts.